What is up, everyone? It is a lovely fall Saturday evening here in Seattle, Washington tonight. I hope you had a fantastic Saturday evening, fantastic weekend, or you're just doing fantastic. Whatever it is that you listen to this. And of course, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We, I'm speaking for both myself and Michelle. We totally appreciate it. You know, obviously, we're still trying to find our stride here. And we just enjoy that the fact that not only do you guys occasionally enjoy what we have to say, maybe even think what we have to say is somewhat relevant or poignant or whatever, but the fact that you're just supporting us is wonderful and we both appreciate it. So again, thank you. I am posting this. Uh, this is the second episode of a two-parter uh, because... While I usually try and do one of these a week, I'm going to try and get this one out tomorrow morning and get the third episode, at least maybe the first part. I might actually just have this one be a one-parter up because it is very relevant in what's going on right now with uh, the new low that Trump has brought us to after his Alabama rally where, you know, amongst other things, he called Colin Kaepernick and players who just happen to want to be activists and protest peacefully against what they see as inequality by using their stance as professional athletes and the visibility that they have during the national anthem to bring attention to this. So we don't delve much into that really at all here in this uh, second part of the second episode, but we do discuss it really at length in the third episode. So I just wanted to make sure that this got posted. I don't want to ever skip anything over because I know that, you know, you're all busy. Michelle and I are busy and Michelle takes the time to chat with me once a week and we're kind of getting somewhat caught up, but I want to get us caught up faster. So that stuff is a little more relevant because for example, you might hear occasionally in this recording that, uh, there's something that kind of hums and comes on every once in a while. Well, that's my portable AC unit because even just you know two, two and a half weeks ago, it was still pretty hot here in Seattle. It wasn't the fall yet, and there were still those wildfires going on, which caused me to cough and be kind of hot in here. So I kept the AC unit going. So that being said, which I say too many times, let's again thank Pan Astral for so graciously allowing us to use their music on what is really just kind of an experimental podcast here. Check them out at panastral.com or iTunes and Pan Astral or the way that I got their music, which was off of Bandcamp, which you can just Google Pan Astral Bandcamp and you can find their music. They're even so gracious as to offer it at a, at a discount because that's just the guys they are. So thank you again to those guys. And not to, because uh, I don't want to use all their music too fast. So once again, on this episode, I am using the song Snowflake off of their latest album, Suburban Blues. But I believe they've got a new album that's dropping here, fairly certain. So again, check them out. Pan Astral. Thanks to them. Thanks to Michelle. And thanks to you. Let's get into it. Thank you. 
I don't know. Some things, <laughs> like some things are at a loss for words, you know, and there is a lot of sexism that goes into how Hillary Clinton was treated. And mm -hmm. I, you know, maybe that's a really good question to ask is if she's trying so hard to kind of tiptoe around the kind of unnecessary, uh, attacks that she's received over the last couple of decades that she really, she ended up being kind of messageless, like removed from it. And, and that's a reaction to the bad press that she gets. And then she gets more bad press for being disingenuous. Like it's this vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's one that she could never win. No, I was going to say, actually just thinking that myself where she listens to her communications team uh -huh. and does the whole because I'm guessing she didn't come up with this because this was very dumb The I recently opened up a new Snapchat account it's like like right after like the, this is like in the like the heat of the email stuff it's like oh like I don't know if you're trying to be funny or what but oh my mm -hmm. gosh like why did you do that yeah and so that gets panned but then she does stuff where you feel she's being a bit more honest, and it goes, I don't know, the, the famous, she seems shrill, like, oh, God. Yeah, that's, so, kind of just to go off topic, and just recommend this out to anybody and anybody, you know, everybody listening, there's a, a good documentary that came out a couple of years ago, and it's called Misrepresentation. M-I-S-S representation. Have you seen that? I have. Good. I'm so stoked that you've seen that. So I I don't know. I think it's it's very provocative in demonstrating like simple simple sexism and the basic verbs or adjectives used to describe women in public office or in the public eye in general use words like that. You know, and they they talk about that. Like, if a if a gentleman said the exact same thing, the article would say, "Well, he stated this, mm -hmm. or he argued that." And then, if it's a woman, they're more likely to be described as, "She shrieked this," or, you know, cried about that. You know, there's there's this emotional, emotional, and just kind of derogatory. A description that's applied to anything they yeah, say. Like it, something referencing, or yes, making it sound like the person is nagging by mm -hmm. asking a yep. question or saying something. Mm-hmm. I yeah. liked in that documentary also where they showed a bunch of women who work in D.C. of different political persuasions getting together for a networking event and all supporting each other. Mm -hmm. And I actually was talking with a I guess a former coworker, I don't want to call him a friend, who had also watched that. And he basically went, Well, why do they have to get together and do that? Like, could you imagine if men did that? I'm like, men do do that. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> That's what happens like 98% yeah. of the time <laughs> exactly. in Washington, D.C. Like, what do you mean, what if men did that? That's what it all is, <laughs> is men doing that. Well, it, oh, that's so funny. I can't think of a lot of men that go to bars with a group of, you know, co-ed friends and have in-depth networking conversations where they talk about their careers. It's like, it's usually, 
with men, in my experience, if you go to a bar with a group of coworkers or friends or you know people in the same industry, uh-huh. it's almost always all men. You just sit there and bitch. <laughs> Forgive the term. Like I, I guess it's almost ironic, but yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. Well, I, th- I think it's maybe it's apt to say that we as men complain. I I don't know if it's uh, more or less, but we certainly complain a whole hell of a lot. And I guess you could say we bitch a whole hell of a lot about nothing, about mm-hmm. perceived slights that don't exist. And then we go, hmm, what's that? <laughs> I guess that's worse. And then we as men go, was that woman saying I'm a sexist because I said bitch? Damn it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, it's that no, I, I I totally agree though. Yeah, that is a very very good, very good uh, documentary. I, I recommend it as well. I don't. I wonder if it's still on Netflix. I watched that. I hope I must it have is. watched that like four or five years ago. Yeah. Well. Okay. I and I think I first saw it in 2013. So it is mm-hmm. like a few years back. You said four or five years ago. I was about to say, oh, I also watched it four or five times. Like, <laughs> it's fine if you didn't watch it that many times. But I, I, think, I, oh, I should it rewatch really it. I only good. watched it the one time. Yeah, no, it's uh, it makes a lot of interesting points that just you know are as relevant today as they were. I don't know when the feminist movement first started. So it's good stuff. Check it out if you haven't. Hopefully, it's on Netflix. Hopefully, yeah. That's it's... my that's my plug. <laughs> Totally agree. Um, oh, this haphazardly brings me to something else I was thinking about last night, uh-huh. actually, where I'm <laughs> I'm oftentimes, I think I have to talk myself off the ledge that I'm a closet conservative libertarian type because I think it's more so I believe in the ideals of you know kind of that communities can govern themselves we can come together decide what's best for ourselves and move forward mm-hmm. but then what oftentimes derails that is that where my sense of you know, kind of communities working together is I still believe in collectivism as opposed to you know, just if the government would leave me alone I'd be just fine like I, I, no we still have to work together that's that's so, little... yeah, like collectivism <laughs> instead of just like unabashed individualism. Exactly. In, in my mind, that's in keeping with, you know, a Lockean democracy where mm-hmm. we are coming together to realize that we're better off. You know, I guess what they call it, like, like almost like a tribe, a herd mentality. We're, we're, we're stronger together, but, you know, we, <laughs> you know, we get property and shit like that. But I digress. So yep, when I hear people go, well, you know, we just need less government because government screws everything up. And then you go, well, hold on a second. I've just started listening to the audiobook of Under the Banner of Heaven. Oh, interesting. Okay. And you have people going, well, uh, you know, polygamy, bigamy, and stuff like that shouldn't be outlawed by the government because that's freedom of religion. 
And then you also hear things from people like Rand Paul and Ron Paul saying that, well, I don't agree with the 13th Amendment because slavery never sh- you know, should have been legal in the first place. It was. Like, I don't... <laughs> like hardcore. Yeah. Legal. Yes. <laughs> or the fact that, you know, and forgive me, I, I'm, I guess I should look this up before I actually do this. You know, when did women get the right to vote? Like, this, this shouldn't be a thing. Like, I yeah. agree it shouldn't be a thing. It was, yeah. and the government serves a purpose in making sure that people are equal. Mm-hmm. It, it's, um, I, I took an online, like, one of those free online MOOCs the massive online open courses. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a law school uh, back east. I can't remember if it was New Penn or Penn State. I don't know, one of them, somewhere in the Pennsylvania. And there was a, the professor made an intre- interesting argument about uh, kind of the evolution of how we think about government and its relationship to the people. And how back in the revolutionary era, it was about becoming free from oppression, at least for, you know, white Christian landowning men mm-hmm. <laughs> in the 1700s, trying to, to define their own uh, uh, terms of liberty and freedom, which they did not feel they were receiving in the colonies from the British Empire anymore. And so the initial setup of our government was the Articles of Confederation, which was a massive shit show Mm -hmm. and you know within a decade the founding fathers thought yeah we need to redo these terms but the way that our (laughs) this isn't working out so good uh but the founding fathers kind of reconfigured things but they still had a great emphasis on the federal government not becoming too powerful it was a good idea to have a uniform currency in a uniform army and, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that the different states could work together. But states' rights, very, very important. Then less than a century later, here comes the Civil War because all of a sudden we're fighting about slavery, which had been a problem for a very long time. Um, you know, a lot of founding fathers wanted to, ex- like, end slavery back when the... the revolution had finished, but it, it would piss too many people off because so many people owned slaves at the time. So they're like, yeah, we'll deal with this later. Mm-hmm. So then what the civil war did was it reconfigured it to where the federal government was no longer this like hands-off system that just made sure the States got along. It was about protecting individuals from their local governments. So The idea in the 1700s was that the federal government could infringe upon your rights and your liberties, and states' rights were the end-all, be-all. Then a century later, it was, well, local governments can really mess things up, too. (laughs) So we had this, there was this mental shift in the American culture, in American society, that, well, the federal government is also good because it's trying to make sure that everybody has liberty that everybody has opportunity. It didn't work out super great all the time. I'm not saying it was this like perfect turnaround, but the idea that government could have a good 
in setting those regulations. That was kind of a newer development in the modern era, especially in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I took so a, the idea oh, that the federal, you, you know, like government, government should stay out of my business and should just leave me alone and everybody would be better off for that. It, it's like, well, it doesn't always work out that way. No, and, no. And we see that all the time. Like there's, you know, there's still systems and, and court cases that start at the state level because something like infringing upon the liberties of an individual within a state, something bad is happening there. And then it's taken to the Supreme Court. There's still supposed to be this balance that the federal government is supposed to make it better for, for everybody. And mm -hmm. that is something that I, that I also believe in. People should have individual responsibilities and stuff, but there's plenty of liberty to go around. So I, I think the federal government has its role in trying to maintain that liberty and freedom for everybody. I agree. And I was going to say, when I was at UNC, I took a, a wonderful constitutional law class, which is actually taught by a working attorney. I don't know if he still teaches there or not. And his basic thing was that the, con the Constitution fundamentally does two things. It grants power to people and limits government and he wasn't saying this as some sort of you know crazy libertarian constitutionalist he was just kind of saying that that's what it should be but it doesn't it hasn't worked that way and it's kind of deviated from that mm -hmm. and i think what we see to your point is that if left in a vacuum and you say that sure you know the federal government uh is limited to doing certain things and that people are free and they have liberty and all this stuff, that's great. But then you have things like the 10th Amendment mm -hmm. where it says if things aren't explicitly, you know, said, like called out in the Constitution, then the states can do what they want. Right. And so you start seeing states go, well, now this is a law because it wasn't, this isn't explicitly written about in the Constitution. And so the federal government was jumping in going, all right, all right, hold on a second. You can't do that. <laughs> hold and up. That, yeah. And that was where you started. I wrote a paper on uh, Andrew Jackson when I was in college where you started seeing some fraying was you know, southern states in particular going, either saying, well, we didn't, this wasn't what we were really on board with because, you know, we, we don't really agree with all this. So let's, if you even tinker with slavery or our economics at all, we might mm -hmm. leave. And Andrew Jackson going, can't do that and it's we've just we're still there as you said with local governments yeah. like we'll do this like no, you, you can't do that and mm -hmm. to sit here and say that well if the government just left us alone which government yeah and that's which one are you talking about <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah there's multiple levels of this <laughs> so maybe that's where you know the point is is that or with you know, small government conservatives are saying that, yeah, if we just cut government across all levels, maybe. But I often think back to, uh, I listened to Mark Maron's podcast where he talked with Penn Jillette, And I don't doubt for a second that Penn Jillette is a, 
you know, solid, good person who donates his money to help out causes and people who need it and donates his time. I don't, I don't doubt that for a second. I think he's a libertarian who walks the walk, you know, talks the talk, all that stuff. But I think he's kind of uh, in the minority of people who hold that, well, at least claim to hold that position of people should help out people instead of government mandating it. Okay. Because it kind of seems like we've got too many people who are like maybe the Mercers or the Cokes who just want, mm. they want to teach that the robber barons are heroes. Right. And that yeah. if things were just left fine, you know, everyone, if we didn't have regulations, if unions were gone, mm. that everyone would make more money. Yeah. No, that's not a thing. No. And, <laughs> we, and we've seen that twice now in our very short history as a country. The robber barons and now, you know. Well, and the fact that they're, they're taking, well, they're trying to take control of not only state governments, federal government, school boards, and choke out education funding and go, well, we'll donate money to you, but you have mm. to use textbooks by you know, people that we agree with, which teach their right. version of history. Revisionist history, yeah. yes. So at this point, is this really freedom at that point? Because like, that's what I right. kind of always try and tell people is, I'm not in favor of mandating what is taught. I think you should bring in people who are qualified yeah. and can teach and stuff like that. And if they have, everyone has a bias, that's fine. A bias one way or another, like, if you know kids learn history from someone who's more conservative and and then someone from liberal, I think give them the, give kids that opportunity. I don't think you should mandate you only be taught this textbook, or you, you know, the teachers mm -hmm. have to stick to exactly what we say. Like right, because that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. it's that's dangerous because everybody thinks they're the good guy, and how that plays out, you know, we we always wrestle with that. Like, everybody thinks that they're right, and everybody thinks they're on the right side of history. But it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't play out the way we all intend. No. And and so that's why we should have different ideas and, you know, different guidelines and just allow teachers to teach. Because, you know, most, most educators go out there with a, a beautiful idealist dream of making a difference in a child's life. That's what most people who go into education think about is how do I make things better for my students and how do I teach them how to think for themselves if that plays out I mean dictating who should <laughs> I mean we don't want like super crazy fringe ideas to get out there but generally speaking it's okay for people to have differing opinions mm -hmm. and maybe we should be more comfortable with talking about those differing opinions and we wouldn't have such a polarized society or such polarized ideals and ideas actual academics yeah. it, over the course of studying stuff for a long time uh -huh. tend to actually have fairly similar beliefs even if they're you know oh, i'm a conservative i'm a you know i'm a liberal they tend mm -hmm. to really kind of run pretty close to each other, kind of like what we used to think of political parties, where we, they just disagree on a few things. Like, it's maybe right. this yeah. would be better than that. And that's fine. What, what I also don't like, and I guess I've got to, <laughs> to be honest with you, on my laptop, I, it's on mute, I do have the uh, football game on right now. I, I've been paying attention to this all. <laughs> 
but to draw a uh, oh, that's hilarious. Really stupid okay. analogy to this. <laughs> I haven't watched as much football over the past few years as I had. Like I was one time sort of a rabid football guy. Like growing up, I I would not only toss the football to myself out in the yard and pretend I was doing things. I collected football cards. I went through my dad's yearbooks and looked at his pictures where he's playing football. But I watched as many as many games as I could through yeah. college, all that stuff. And when people yeah. would ask me, like, you know, what you like about football, I would say, to me, it's a very American game in that you have people of different sizes and shapes and ability. Like, well, they're all men, technically, this right, is the NFL. Yeah. But as I said, this isn't a great analogy. <laughs> but, <laughs> Keep going. Um, Just go through it. Who are all working together, doing different things, to try and accomplish a singular objective, and that's to right. win. Yeah. And that's what I oftentimes think about with, I guess, uh, education, but more so about just everyday life, where we, if we bring different ideas together and different abilities, again, again this is kind of collectivism, or I guess if someone listens to this, call it socialism, or communism mm-hmm. for that matter. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. we can advance... In some capacity. Yeah, yeah. Where we can advance society by recognizing that we're all better off for having our, each other around us and not... In, and recognizing that we all bring different things to the table mm-hmm. as opposed to trying uniform everything. Like trying to fit everyone into the same category. Right, yeah. yeah to, kind of to our conversation last week you know, with history where... And if we try and force everything to be neat and clean, it, it's just not going to work mm. out that way. Yeah, and I it's think wrong. It, yeah. If we embrace differences, that's why, like, I oftentimes get mad at people that just – and I, I've done this myself, so I'm not going to try and say I haven't. But try and paint people that they disagree with politically, for example, as some sort of right – like, in my case – right-wing nut jobs who hate America and are racist assholes. Like, yeah. they try and go, no, no, I want to, I want to learn. I want to, I want to understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're, we're kind of at a weird point right now where do we want to really listen to, maybe, I guess we could listen to people that voted for Trump, but don't like him now. But do we want to listen to those 33% of people that will always vote for Trump? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It be, that's that's the segment that they don't support him because they agree with him. They agree with him because they support him. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like the inverse of how we would like politics to be. Like, Something that should be about thinking things through, rationalizing, logical steps. It doesn't look that way. And I'm sure it, that's probably how it is on both sides. Like, we don't, as far as, like, conservative and liberal, I didn't really specify there. Oh, I, I, was, I, I knew what you meant, but so I didn't clarify <laughs> I figured you knew what I meant, but I thought I should, like, clarify just in case, because... 
Well, it's not just me listening to you. So. <laughs> oh, God, I know. Well, at least we know your parents listen to our podcast. <laughs> There's true. a couple of people out there who have listened to us. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where I was going with that, but we should, um, we're already at the, like the hour mark. <laughs> so okay. If, if we're going to keep any type of audience, we should like, I'm not saying wrap up. I was going to say we should tie all of this over into Dinesh D'Souza because that was... That works for me. God, I spent like a disgusting amount of time <laughs> trying to understand. I, I'm sorry. No, don't be sorry. <laughs> I'm the one that suggested that as a topic. Worst idea I've ever had, I think, like trying to go through it. And so just quick little backstory for you and listeners, I guess. I still work at a bookstore very, very part time. I don't have to. I choose to. Why? Because I like books and I like an employee discount on books. It's great. So a few weeks ago, release day for uh, books and publications is mainly on Tuesday. Some people like, uh, you know, John Grisham or James Patterson can release their books all by themselves on Mondays. But anyways, I digress. So a couple of Tuesdays ago, I'm unboxing some of the new books I need to set out on the displays. And I pull out this book called The Big Lie. Oh. And I, I, it's striking to me automatically because the font of the title is very reminiscent to the old style German font that was used by oh. the National, <laughs> National Socialist Party while Hitler was in power in Germany. So my, immediately my brain goes WTF and I look at it and it, I, I just, I could barely stomach even just one paragraph out of the book flap. It's talking about how the Nazis and ultra right wing, what we call us being the uh, super biased leftist liberal media says, you know, the Nazis have their are mislabeled as right-wing. That's basically what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And that actually Nazis and fascists come from the left-wing and Democrats. Uh. And, I, and I just was like, how can this be a thing? So, yeah, and I thought, oh, let's talk through it. Horrible idea. I had to research it. This was my first foray into D'Souza's politics or arguments of any kind, and it was... Enlightening is the wrong word. I would say it was grotesque and disappointing. So, And, Noel, you are far more versed in, I would say, modern politics. I, I tend to approach things in, uh, in a different perspective than you do. So I guess very broadly speaking, what's your experience or, or knowledge on Dinesh D'Souza? So... Um... Another listener of ours, uh, Mr. Ben Griffiths, who listened to the podcast, before, I'm sure he'll listen to this one, he had sent me, because I didn't even know who Dinesh D'Souza was at one point until our, our mutual friend, Ben's my mutual friend, started sharing stuff by him like, who the hell is this guy? And Ben sent me a link to, I don't, I'll look it up and I'll post it on the blog as well, um, an article that someone had written that said at one point, Dinesh D'Souza had actually been a respected or somewhat respected academic because he has academic qualifications. Mm -hmm. But he realized that 
the path to riches laid in writing for the readers and not for the editors. So when he started writing his crazy bullshit <laughs> is when he started making money. And I haven't done that much research on his book because it's going to drive me nuts. But mm-hmm. I have seen that you would actually know a lot about this where – People have referenced the fact, or not the fact, they've referenced something about how the reason that, you know, the National Socialist Party, you know, the Nazis, called themselves socialists was either to, I believe, try to potentially ingratiate themselves to leftists within Germany, or was it just to appear more centrist? I I would... (laughs) I, I can't say that I could speak to to either of those. It was kind of both because, I mean, fascism as a movement or just even as a, a concept that doesn't actually have a real ideology. It's just that most fascist groups that we think of have very similar actions where they just beat the shit out of people they don't like or they're, murder people they don't like. Like, that's really... Very, the, uh... <laughs> They're very, very nationalistic. Exactly. They so tend I, to be very racist. Yes, yeah. And so I would say that out of the out of the title National Socialist, um, the national is more important. The socialist mm-hmm. is like a misleading secondary because what they really cared about was nationalism and the, yeah. con- the concept of a like a homogenous ethnic nation yes. state so the nationalist part is more important than the socialist like the socialist part is, is kind of like misleading and the way that americans think about socialism is different than how like europeans think anyway so i, w- I would say nationalist is the focus yes yes uh you look at people like richard spencer and mm-hmm. even to an extent steve bannon they talk about you mm-hmm. know, an ethnocentric state right and you know, other things where Oh, and I sent you a link late last week after we finished reporting the podcast, which was uh, to The Ghost of Old Miss, the actual documentary version, where they show Governor Ross Barnett giving a speech, doing his whole thing. Uh Which I have not watched yet. I do apologize. It's good. I I don't blame you. I oftentimes anymore have a hard time watching somewhat depressing documentaries because it's like... (laughs) Uh, I worked all day long. I just want to watch something and laugh or, like, not right, think. Right, exactly. I, mean, I oftentimes find myself coming home and watching it sort of chopped for no reason. Yeah, yeah, I get but that. I do. <laughs> he gets, and this is where, like, I don't understand this is still a thing. You know, this was from the early 60s. And mm-hmm. this governor of Mississippi gets on television and says there has not been, in the history of the human race, there has not been a, not a society, but, like, he's basically mentioning that, that survives integration. And his quote is, we will not drink from the cup of genocide. Like, and I was thinking to myself, like, that was only, I guess at this point, like 50-something years ago. Mm -hmm. And now this stuff is coming back up where, well, we'd be better off if we just stuck with our own race. What the hell are you talking about? Like, Right. That just, back to the whole Rush Limbaugh thing, that just defies 
everything we know about science. Like, it defies all logic. Mm -hmm. You're just, you're boiling everything down to just basic, weird, I don't want to say, like, anecdotal evidence. Because it's not evidence at all. It's kind of just the feelings of a few people that get it in their head. Like, I guess, bandanism, if you will, that... We're more safe when we're more homogenized, like, and that's not right. true. It's in fact that, back to my thing about America, it's we're we're worse when we're more segregated. But right, yeah. I, I would say maybe maybe the like better term for it or a, a different word to understand like the appeal of that is we're more comfortable when we're homogenized. True. It has really nothing to do with actual. Security, safety, opportunity, nothing like that. It's just comfort. I I wanted to talk about this this week, but I think we'll try and wrap things up here. Mm-hmm. I finished the audiobook recording, and I just actually got the physical hardback book version this evening of Chris Hayes' uh, Calling in a Nation, which okay. I, I, I'll, um, I guess I can either send you the copy of the book, or I think I can send you a copy of the audiobook if that's easier. Yeah, I mean, whichever. Can... I Yeah, because I would, I would be interested okay. in that. And we can talk about that next week. But he, he kind of talks about the same thing where with the... Do you, are you familiar with the broken windows policing concept? Yes. Theory? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I remember my dad talking about that when I was a kid that I must have been like, I don't know, maybe 13, something like that. Anyways, and saying how Rudy Giuliani cleaned up New York because he, this I I don't want to quote him exactly, but I do recall it was he he had cops arrest bums. He, he probably didn't say bums. He probably said homeless people, but right. He had cops arrest bums for you know peeing in public, and how uh-huh. that really turned around the city. And the I think they were psychologists who were really credited with coming up with this theory. They, this had nothing to do with crime statistics. They weren't criminologists or anything like that, or statisticians for that matter. It was all about how people felt, if they felt yeah. safer by seeing right. more people arrested. And I didn't know what to expect from his book, but it, it he just always goes back to you know people like you and myself who grew up in middle-class white areas, fairly affluent, you know, we grew up with a nation, and we don't really have a really much of a concept of what it's like to live in a police state, right. as where blacks and increasingly even poor white people now, right. you know, are experiencing the colony, which is a police state where the police only show up to enforce laws. Right. And so he 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 does a great job. But we'll I'll send you the audiobooks. So we can talk about it more. Sure. But yeah, it's just this. It's our feelings that we're like <laughs> back to the squirrel thing is <laughs> we're not really having conversation about expertise, data, facts, statistics. We're having a conversation of things we feel, things we think we've noticed or we've right. experienced over, well, at least we've, we feel we've experienced over time. And I don't think we're any better off for it. Right. I would agree with you. Yeah. 
And also, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. This horrible book, The Big Lie, <laughs> <laughs> has a 4.5 rating out of five on Amazon. <laughs> like, Ugh, but yes, yes. Like literally the only people reading it are the people who want to hear this kind of stuff. There's a, uh, speaking of lesser known documentaries on the, on Netflix that I watched four or five years ago, there mm-hmm. was one that I can't remember the title of it. And again, I'll, I'll figure it out and put it on the blog where the, I think he's an Australian filmmaker goes to these things that are funded. It might be Citizen Coke, but it goes to these things that are funded by the Coke brothers. Okay. And one of the, I don't know what the hell you could even call this. Something, a function he goes to is how to go on Amazon and basically give terrible reviews to shoot down liberal publications and shoot down liberal books and prop up books by conservative authors. That's why, like, when you say 4.5, I'm like, I don't believe that for a second. That's right. That's manipulation. It is. It's got to be. It's got to be. And it's like trying to research a little bit more about this book and the arguments he makes. And I mean, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. It was, it was legitimately difficult to find a respectable, uh, anything <laughs> like a respectable zine or magazine newspaper. I think they've all written pund- them off at this point. Oh, totally. And so, like, while I'm doing my research on this, I'm like, yeah, I see why. Because if you talk about it, you're giving this, like, credence. Like, you know, mm-hmm. in some respects, like, I totally understand that concept. Um, but at the same time, like, you should, you know, people should be aware of this kind of crap that's out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And totally. Let's say one last point before we sign off here, because I, I feel like it ties in, but. Another shout out to another listener who happens to be in my immediate family. Mm-hmm. Right after Obama was elected, I was really just getting pissed off at everything I was seeing. Clips of Glenn Beck, his books, and I don't know. Sorry, I don't recall if you were working at Borders at this exact time when the election went down, but his books were everywhere. Yeah, I do. I do remember that. Yep. Okay, and I was going off on one of my. And I'm, I, I think I'm probably known for these at this point. Just tirades of this is so. <laughs> this is so dumb. This is why it's stupid and complaining about it in front of my sister. And she goes, "I used to like Glenn Beck," and I was like, "What?" Like I just got instantly upset. <laughs> and she admitted like she hadn't really like followed him in a few years, but she thought that you know he was kind of. More of, I don't, I'm probably misrepresenting her what she said here, but I don't say centrist. She thought he was kind of, he, he wasn't necessarily going for one party or the other, and that he did recommend that people read up, not, not, not just take his word for it. And I think it was you know, apoplectic, to be honest. I wasn't even reasonable. I was probably like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. And so she recommended that I read Glenn Beck's version of you know Thomas Paine's I guess his Glenn Beck's inspiration what would you call it treatise of I, Thomas I Paine's guess. Uh, I mean, common sounds, sense yeah mm-hmm. and I read the first two chapters and 
I don't mean, and I'm not, believe me, I am not in, must make this clear, I am not in any way, shape, or form suggesting that Glenn Beck is Hitler. I am not saying <laughs> that at all. I okay. think Glenn Beck has been a repugnant influence on and caustic influence on our politics but I don't think he's evil. I don't think I think he's I don't even think he's as bad as Rush Limbaugh as far as irresponsible and wickedness yeah. and vileness or sorry I thinking back to I just I finished a few months ago uh, all the king's men where there's one character who's going foulness it's not that but the way that Glenn Beck in the first two chapters frames it that, you know, you're not the one who got an addition on your house that you couldn't afford. You're not the one who spent money on things like, you know, cars and whatever that you couldn't afford. This isn't, you know, the aftermath of the you know, great uh, recession. You, know, you right. just said you're, like, you're a good person. You send your kids to school. You do all this stuff. You're, you're just trying to get by, which might be true. But it made me think of the first chapter I'd read. You know, I must have been like 20 at the time. The first chapter I'd read of Mein Kampf, where apart from the occasional like dalliances off to crazy anti-Semitism, he's, he's trying to kind of go, well, you know, you're not the reason. You, you've been doing things right. Like, well, I have been right. doing things right. Mm. And it's just whenever I think of this stuff, it's it's just irresponsible writing. It's yeah. – you know, at least Glenn Beck can go, even though Glenn Beck's a Harvard dropout, I believe, uh, at least he isn't a, you know, kind of going off this thing of, I'm a respected scholar. Well, you might have been at one point, Dinesh, but you're actually now a convicted felon, but have fun with that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. He's a, yeah. But, He's a very confusing figure, that's for sure. But writing these books to appeal to... I guess in Beck's in case, in case, in the case of Beck, he wasn't trying to appeal to the viciousness of the reader. He was trying to appear to their, what's, what's a good term for it? Basest yet blind humanity, like of themselves. Mm. They mm -hmm. just kind of putting up blinders. As with Dinesh D'Souza, he's a, trying to appeal to readers that he knows want to hate liberals mm -hmm. and progressives and Democrats by going, no, you're, you, you're okay to feel this way because I'm smart. Right. Yep. Yep. And I'm going to cite all these sources and say fancy things about history that you wouldn't know to fact check or you didn't know about. And it's all not real, but yeah, it is an appeal to just the worst inclinations of individuals it's yeah it's oh man I, as i picked kind of a poor jumping off point here it's but yeah it's the same stuff where i guess we're in this case with rush limbaugh it's confirmation bias wrong amok where we're all yeah. just trying to find yeah. stuff that i'm a good person i mean well you don't you're the one that messed things up Mm -hmm. You're the real problem fault. here. <laughs> you, oh, I like how you circled back to the beginning. Yeah, I, exactly. I try. <laughs> yeah. 
Because, you know, it's called the big lie. And he says the big lie is that fascism is actually the Democratic Party in the United States. And, you know, Nazis and Nazi sympathizers are actually left-wing liberals. And no, Dinesh D'Souza, the big lie is everything that you're saying right now. That's, that's the lie. And he's... We got invited the White House to do so. Plus, at least I hope he's yeah. not a millionaire, but he might be. I'm sure he's got a shit ton of money. That book is still on the bestseller list, everybody. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, well, yep. I know you and I talked about this before, too, where during Bush's presidency, you saw a bunch of leftist pundits that came out of nowhere. To, you know, it's a cottage industry to hate on the current president. Sure. But yeah. I feel totally. like another going back to the point of our conversation tonight, where we're still they're, they're playing the old hits. They're they're blaming Obama. <laughs> they're blaming Hillary. It's like, and I recall just a few mere months, like maybe two or three months, where someone asked Obama a question and he said something about, "Well, that goes back to the previous president," and they all went, "You're passing the buck," like. And now mm-hmm. it's we're in this state of, well, if, if things go bad, play your hits. You know, as I always tell people yeah. when they, actually I do this on a Twitter a lot where I see someone that goes, sure, Trump may have be enabling Nazis and white supremacists, but remember that time Obama, it's like, oh, so I'll just yeah. put play free bird. Hey.